you know, you guys didn't say, oh, we don't want to listen to that guy again next week. Let's get him out of here. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited because, like I said last week, the, the main thing a, a missionary wants to do when he gets home is preach the gospel, but he has to, you know, it's his responsibility to give the perspective that God is, is granting from the nations. But since I'm here two weeks, I get to preach the gospel this week, so I'm pretty excited. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this community who's come together, not to listen to any man, but to, to hear from you. They want to know what's on your heart and what you're thinking, Lord. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would reveal to our, our hearts who you are, what you, what you think over us, what you think about us, how much you love us, and, and that we would begin to understand a little bit more how much you've given so that we can know you. So we pray that you would just be pleased to reveal yourself today in our midst and uh, that, yeah, that you would give the grace that I could just uh, kind of fade away and that they would, they would not say later, well, that guy said something nice, but they would say, you know, I heard from God today. That's what we want, is that you speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, there's a story. I don't know if you've heard it, uh, but about this little Dutch farmer. He and his wife lived on a, a little farm, and uh, you know, every morning he'd go out and milk the cows and come back, and breakfast was ready. You know, some of you guys maybe learned how over the years you like your system and you like your system to stay the way it is. And one morning he comes in from milking the cows and there is no breakfast on the table. And he says, woman, why is there no breakfast on the table? And, and he sees her in the corner. She's crying. And, and he says, woman, why are you crying? And why is there no breakfast on the table? <laughs> and, and she says, you don't love me anymore. And he says, well, of course I love you. And she says, well, you, you never said You haven't said it since we got married. And he said, exactly. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> and uh, oftentimes that's the way, especially men approach things, right? I mean, we just kind of set a standard and we just figure, you know, we're going to let that run its course. And if anything changes, we'll let you know. But, but in the end, that's not always the best course. In the end... It's good to be reminded of good things. It's important to be reminded of important things. I'm very happy when my wife reminds me of something I'm just about to forget. I'm very happy about that. Even though we might often associate reminding with nagging or, oh, I've heard that before, I know that already. It's really important that we are reminded of the important things. And also, uh, psychologists, brain scientists, they see that what we think about from the past influences our present and our future. It's, it's called a priming, that it primes our thoughts now, and we interpret what we see now by what we think of the past. And so being reminded of the things that are important is crucial, uh, not only to frame our, our past, but also to prime our, our present and to prepare our future. It's very important what we think about, what we, uh, yeah, what we give our thoughts to, how we see the past. And so we're going to be uh, going through 1 Corinthians 15, or the beginning of the chapter, because... Uh, in the youth group in Germany, we just finished 1 Corinthians 14. I figured, let's just keep moving forward here. I'll just keep marching through the scripture, because that's the thing we do, just chapter by chapter. So you guys get to join, in essence, our youth group, who just went through this on Friday with a guest speaker. Like I said, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. You can open your Bibles. We'll be in there a lot today. And uh, our, our subject today is the good news of the resurrection. The good news of the resurrection with the, the object, the goal of clinging to the word. And it says here in, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you, are, you stand, and by which you are being saved, if 
you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So he says here, I would remind you. We just talked a little bit about that, the importance of being reminded of something. Now I would remind you. And the thing he's reminding them of is not something to nag about, but it is, it is the gospel. It is literally, Evangelion, the good news. It is a good news of victory. He wants to remind them of victory. And, and I find I, I can never be reminded of a victory too much. It's always good to know, hey, you're a winner. You're a winner. You're a winner. And who is in Christ Jesus? He's a winner because Christ is a winner and he has made us winners through him. So he's reminding them that they are winners in Christ. I mean, to, to put it in a modern frame of reference, when your football team wins and somebody tells you about it, that is gospel. Uh, yeah? Now, so if, you know, uh, praise God for you, Brother Luther. You are an Ohio State fan. And so when somebody comes and says, hey, Ohio State beat Michigan, then that is gospel for you. Right? And now other people in here might think that's a false gospel, right? <laughs> but for you, that would be gospel, okay? Or uh, if the police come and tell you the guy who stole your purse has been caught and we're going to return your purse, that is gospel. Yeah? Or if, uh, if somebody gives you a lottery ticket and says, you just won $10,000, well, that's gospel for you, baby. That's gospel, okay? So when we hear gospel, we shouldn't think about like some southern genre of music, as nice as that might be for some people, but gospel is just an exciting good news of victory. Something good has happened and is being proclaimed, right? So, so that's gospel. And what exactly the gospel is, he will tell us here in verses 3 to 8. Um, but, but in the end, uh, the point is that it's gospel, it's good news for us if we're on Team Jesus. Yeah, if we're not on Team Jesus, it's not it's not good news. But if we're, if we're standing in Christ, or if we're, we're willing to receive and stand in Christ, then it is, it is good news for us. We see that here, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul assumes, he assumes that the Corinthians are on team Jesus. He sees, he sees at least some good fruit. There's a lot of craziness going on in the church there, but he sees some group, uh, good fruit. And so he assumes they are on team Jesus. And I think that's a good assumption to, to bring to people. I, I also know Christians who assume every person who they meet, despite what they say about Jesus, is, is on the path to hell. I think that's not the biblical assumption. If somebody says they're a Christian, we should first just assume that they are a Christian and walk into that. And, uh, yeah, he says here, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And, uh, this is really interesting because this, this are, uh, are being saved. It's telling us that salvation is not something that happened to you at some point in history, right? It's not, I was saved at that point. Like it scares me when people, all their stories about being a Christian are from like 20, 40 years ago. You know, back in those days when they were a teenager and they did all this stuff for Jesus. And, and it's like, since then, nothing's happened. Like, that's, that's concerning for me. Because it, it says that they received him, but they're not necessarily standing in him. They're not, they're not continually pro- participating in this process of being saved. They are being saved. They're in this process. Now, it's, it's not just one point in history, but it's something that has its first moment in history and has continued up until today. Like it says in that great old hymn, Amazing Grace, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. There is a moment when we first believe, but it's not the moment where we believe and then we don't do anything after that. It's the moment I first believe. It's the moment I first get in contact with Jesus. And since then, I've been standing in him and I've been holding fast to him. 
That's, that's the true Christian walk. Not, not some moment where you prayed a prayer one time and since then nothing has happened in your life. And he kind of gives this warning here. If, that's conditional statement, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. And the issue Paul, uh, for Paul here was not, did you receive Christ, but are you standing in Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you holding fast to Christ? Holding fast to the word preached to you? And, and there are plenty of people today who would say that at one point they received the gospel, but they're not standing uprightly. They're not, they're not walking with the Lord. They're not holding fast to him. And uh, there are even pastors of whom I unfortunately know a few who, who claim to stand in Christ, and yet they don't hold fast to the word that Paul preached. They claim to be Christians, and yet they reject the word. And he says here, if you hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. And, and we see here something that James refers to, in, uh, refers to as a demonic faith. James says that even the believe, uh, I'm sorry, even the demons believe and they tremble. And yet their faith won't save them. It's not a saving faith. It's a demonic faith. It's a, it's, I understand that that thing's there, but I don't want to have anything to do with him. Right? And he's, he's talking about a faith that actually grabs a hold of us. It changes us as we also hold to that. And so uh, this might come as a shock to some of you because, uh, you may have been told, say a sinner's prayer one time and your soul is secure forever no matter what happens after that. But, uh, you know, I'm not the judge, right? And yet the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians thirteen five, examine yourselves. Yeah, I can't, I can't judge you and I'm not going to try to judge you. Yeah, I mean, if I see something really obvious, I'm going to tell you, look, that, that's, you're not allowed to do that, right? But ultimately, it's not my judge to try to hold the microscope over everything you do and try to figure out, is he saved or is he not saved? That's not my job. That's Jesus' job. But it says here, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, and we see this word here again, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so there's going to be some form of a, a a litmus test or something at the end of ages where Jesus figures out who really holds to him, who really loves him, and who was just kind of a front runner. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't want these front runners. I mean, of course, when Jesus comes in victory, riding this, this horse with the name Lord of Lord and King of Kings tattooed on him, you know, some guys talk about it's going to be like he's riding a white Harley with an with a automatic rifle. You know, when he comes in power at the, at the return of Christ, of course, everyone's going to be like... I'm, I'm for this guy. Like, I'm definitely not against him, of course. And yet, Jesus doesn't want front runners. And, and yeah, like I said, I'm not the judge. But I do know Jesus wants faithful followers. Because he wants our whole life. He doesn't, he doesn't just want our soul. You know, some people, it's like, he's this weird, like, headhunter who wants souls. But no, he wants our whole life. And not because he wants servants. He doesn't want servants. He wants sons and daughters of God. He wants people who experience the abundant life of walking with the Lord, which doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect in this life. A lot of things get better when you become a Christian, but some things get worse, right? Because it's also hard sometimes to be a Christian. And, and, and so he... He wants us to, to walk with him and grow in him and experience his, his holiness growing within us. And like I said, he doesn't want front runners. He wants faithful followers. And, uh, you know, 
when I think of faithful followers, I think of Browns fans, right? <laughs> like anybody who, who, you know, in 2017 saw how the Browns broke records of losing and they had a, a zero and 16 season and they still get up in the morning and put on that Browns cap. You're like, that is a faithful follower. That man has faith. All right. Cause we see nothing, no promise of any championships here. And he has faith, you know, and it's, it's improved a little bit, but you know, I just, I think, boy, if I could have half as much faith sometimes as those Browns fans, you know, who keep laying down all that money for tickets just to watch them lose. I'm like, man, there, there's some real faith there, man. And, uh, yeah, you know, when, it, oh, well, I should say, if it ever happens that they do win a championship, you know, who's going to be yelling the loudest. Right? You know who's going to be most excited. It's going to be those people who have stuck by their side the whole time. And when Jesus comes back, like I said, I don't know who's saved. I don't know who's not saved. But I know the people who are going to be most excited are those people who have followed him through, through the mountains and the valleys. Those are going to be the people who are really excited about his return. And that's what he wants for us. Because he wants a life for us that is fulfilling. Not just us pursuing our desires, but pursuing that which is ultimately and objectively good. Yeah, and so we see these, these two teams here. As, as Paul will go on to say in his next letter, in 2 Corinthians two fourteen, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So the gospel is good news for those who are on Team Jesus. And I hope all of us here, and I'm going to assume that all of us here are on Team Jesus. In the end, you have to examine yourself, but that's going to be my assumption because you seem like a wonderful group of people that we are all on Team Jesus and it is for us good news. But if you find yourself hearing the gospel and thinking, I don't know, I don't like it, it, you know, it doesn't find a place in me, then maybe you're not on Team Jesus and you should examine yourself and consider whether you should join Team Jesus because for those who follow him, it is good news. But for those who don't, it's, it's not good news. So let's see what exactly the gospel is because we keep saying gospel, gospel. And that really, it annoys me, honestly, sometimes with Christians who they always say the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and they never actually tell anyone what the gospel is or when they try to present the gospel, they don't know how. Like I've, I've had people, you know, and they're like, you know, you guys don't preach the gospel enough in your church. You need to preach the gospel more. And I said, okay, explain to me what is the gospel in simple terms. And they start to falter and stutter and stumble over their words trying to come up with, uh, okay, yeah, apparently we don't preach the gospel, but you're not quite totally sure what it is. But, you know, okay, let's see what it is. If, and if you are in yourself kind of questioning, I'm not sure if I know exactly what the gospel is. You should highlight this, maybe write it down somewhere, because this is going to be probably the most concise explanation of the gospel. I mean, it's presented in a different way in John 3.16, but this is kind of the nuts and bolts, the, the gospel in a, in a nutshell. Here in 3 we read, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared also to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Yeah, so before we break that down, let's, let's look at this little inter- introduction. It's easy to read over that, but there's some, 
there's some good information here because he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, which has three big ideas in there. The first one, sorry, that's totally German. Oh, I used my thumb. Okay, three big ideas here. Um, Paul did not come up with the gospel, but he received it. Yeah, he didn't make this up. He didn't, it's not like some cult, like, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, where they just like start to twist Bible passages and come up with their own interpretation. He's like, no, I didn't come up with this. I received it. And actually, Paul received it directly from Jesus. And after he's been preaching a while, God's like, you know, you need to go check with the other apostles. And so he goes and he, he checks with the others. He's like, hey, guys, this is what I'm preaching. Is this right? And they're like, yeah, that's exactly the gospel that we received which is, you know, pretty interesting. People receiving the exact same gospel from Jesus separately. It's like confirmation. Everything should be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so he did, not res- he did not come up with the gospel. He received it. Paul faithfully and explicitly delivered it to the Corinthians. And so he didn't like implicitly uh, give them the gospel. It wasn't, you know, I'm going to show you the gospel by my good works, though we should also do that. But he explicitly told them the good news, and he delivered it as first priority. Yeah, it was number one priority. It wasn't, you know, let's build a relationship for about 16 years, and then maybe I'll implicitly let you know something about my faith. But for him, like, that was the first thing. That was what he lived for. That's what his heart burned for. And, you know, honestly, sometimes, like, I don't know, it used to be a big thing, you know, maybe like in the early 2000s, like this friendship evangelism thing, which it's totally good to be friends with people and to share the gospel with your friends. But this idea that you have to first befriend somebody before you earn the right to tell them about Jesus, to me, it felt very dishonest because it felt like I'm hiding the most important thing about my life until some later date when we have built this relationship. And I mean, the gospel is central to my life. And so if you're going to get to know me, you're going to get to know about Jesus because that's just one of the most important things to me or the most important. Also, as Paul says, first priority and, uh, yeah, I think if, if people get to know us, then they should also know, hey, we're Christians. We love Jesus. And you know what I've found? Most people are totally cool with that. You know, they don't want to receive it for themselves necessarily, but they're cool with other people being Christians. You know, they're cool with having friends who are Muslim or Hindu or whatever, and they're cool with having Christian friends, you know? And as long as you don't try to jam it down their throat, which I think is, is wise, you know, you present it to them, but if they're like, I don't want to hear about it, then you're like, okay, I'll respect that. You know, maybe I end up talking with somebody else who does want to hear it, but you know, it's not, I don't want to hear it. Oh, you got to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You got to hear it. And then he's like, I'm going to shoot you because I don't want to hear it. And I think you've overstepped your boundaries. Maybe, I don't know. You know, Jesus says, if they don't, if they don't want to hear it, then knock the the dust off your feet and just move on to the next community. Right. And if somebody really doesn't want to hear it, you know, you can just knock the dust off your feet and move on to the next person. Maybe he wants to hear it, you know? We don't have to spend our whole life trying to make one person want to hear it, and the whole time he's just getting more and more angry, and he doesn't even care what you have to say anymore because you just don't respect him enough to listen to him, right? I guess I kind of got on a tangent there. But, uh, yeah. But yet, Paul delivered it as first priority. And uh, he, he did have a lot of enemies. But, you know, like when they kicked him out of the, or when they didn't want him in the synagogue anymore, he's like, fine, I'll leave the synagogue and I'll go open a church directly next to the synagogue, right? So you don't want to hear it, that's fine, but I'm still going to keep preaching to those who want to hear, right? So that's the thing is we can't stop preaching just because some people don't want to hear it. Yeah, we could uh, uh, ask ourselves the question, are we faithfully delivering the gospel as first priority to other people as it is written in his word? Because if we want to be faithful ambassadors, that's our job. 
And I know for a lot of people, it's like, well, I don't know. That's weird, and I'm not very good at that, or my gifting. I'm not an evangelist. Like, I can't do that. But I know, in the end, anybody can do this. Um, Because I'm an idiot, and God uses me. (laughs) And I've heard of other people who God has also used. uh, You may have heard of Greg Laurie. He's like the biggest evangelist and crusades after uh, Billy Graham. He does these big harvest crusades. And he said the first person he led, led to the Lord was uh, through the four spiritual laws. Does anybody remember the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade? Okay, a couple people. Yeah, so it was just this this tract. And um, he went up to this lady on the beach, and he's like, uh, can I read you this? And she's like, uh, sure, I guess. And so he just reads through the whole pamphlet, this whole tract. He just reads through it word for word, doesn't even look up. And at the end, you know, it has this question, you know, seeing that these things are true, would you like to pray the prayer of salvation? And, and he looks up, and she's like, yeah, okay. And he's like, oh, you know, kind of like, oh, what do I do now? I don't know. I guess we pray together, right? And so that was the first person Greg Lloyd led, led to the Lord is some, you know, 18-year-old with hair down to his hips on the beach, this sur- surf bum. Like, if he can do it, you know, I think anybody can do it. And I've I've seen times in my life where I've also approached people, also not even with the, the right attitude, and God works through that. I was in a place, in the, it was a ghetto in, in Hamburg, Germany, and uh, I was there to do ministry. And you know, it's funny, sometimes when you want to do ministry, people get in the road. <laughs> okay, it's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Maybe you've had that experience as well, and it seems pretty serious, Right. You're like, I want to serve the Lord, but uh, these people keep getting in the way. Ministry would be great without the people. No, the ministry is for the people, but sometimes it feels like they're in the way. And so I was there, and, you know, I'm this dumb kid. I was, I don't know, 20 at the time. And uh, there's this young Turkish guy, this Muslim guy, and and he found out I was from America, and he thought that was awesome, you know. And so he was asking me all about how America is and and what's it like to play football and and what are the rules. And he keeps, you know, I'm like, I can't even, you know, minister because this guy is just like in my grill the whole time wanting to know about america i don't i'm not here to talk about america i'm here to talk about the gospel and i just had this idea like well you could just you know just kind of hit him the gospel like you don't need to do this friendship evangelist thing you know if um you can just preach the gospel and either he receives it or maybe he won't like it and then he'll leave you alone so you know it's just like a win-win either i run him off or he becomes a christian and so i just you know i'm like uh Hey, man, have you ever told a lie? You know, you've got maybe heard of Way of the Master. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah, well, what does that make you? A, a liar, you know? Have you ever stolen anything? What does it make you? Have you ever, have you ever blasphemed? Have you ever uh, looked at a person lustfully? Well, you know, by your own omission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer. You know, when you come before God on the day of judgment, is he going to find you innocent or guilty? Well, guilty, right. And so can he send you to heaven? Or if you're guilty, he has to send you to hell, right? Well, yeah. But did you know there's good news that, that Jesus came and died for our sins in our place according with the scriptures and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures so we might have life with God eternally. Would you like to receive that? And he's like, well, I guess I have to. He's like, well, yeah, if you want to be saved, you've got to receive this, right? And so I'm like, okay, guy, I'm, j- I'm just going to lay hands on you just to kind of show that we're standing together in spirit and I'm going to pray and uh, just make it simple. If you agree with what I say, just say amen, right? And so we just pray together, and I pray over him, and he says amen a couple times, and then we, we finish the prayer, and I look up, and his eyes are all big, and he's like, 
whoa. And I'm like, what's going on, dude? And he's like, he's like, I said amen because you said like amen means I, I agree and so I should agree if I agree and I agreed and then the something came into me and I was like, oh, that's cool, man. That's the Holy Spirit. And he's like, what's the Holy Spirit? <laughs> like, all right, well, I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit is, right? And the, so like my heart was not right at the beginning of that conversation at all. I just wanted to kind of get rid of this kid and felt like the most holy way to get rid of somebody is just to preach the gospel to him. And then he became a Christian, and his life got so flipped upside down. He got so excited about Jesus, he runs home to his Muslim parents and says, you know, I met this guy, and he told me about Jesus, and I prayed, and the Spirit came in me, and his parents were like, this is not okay. And so, and so they forbade him from ever seeing me again or ever coming back to this group. So I hadn't been able to keep up with him, but I pray that, you know, God has put other people in his life. That's happened, unfortunately, a couple times in our ministry there. People get their life so flipped upside down, and, and they're so on fire, they're like, have you joined a cult? Like, why are you so happy? This is not normal, you know? But uh, anyhow, that's an example of me being stupid, not having the right heart and meeting somebody. And, and in the end, it's God's word and it's, it's his work. And if he wants to move in somebody's heart, then he's going to do that. If he finds somebody who's, whose heart has been opened, then he's going to, to use that. And um, I think it's also really important for us that we recognize that God goes before us in these things. He prepares these opportunities. Yeah, we, we don't need to think we need to manipulate everything to be in place. We just need to be faithful and trust that he's prepared that opportunity. Like one time I was coming out of basketball and I was actually um, speaking with my, my buddies from basketball about the Lord. And I just had the sense like, stop. This is not the conversation I want you having right now. And so I stopped and they kept walking to their cars. And I looked around and there were a couple guys drinking around a fire which is, you know, it's Germany. So this happens a lot, right? <laughs> a couple guys drinking somewhere. This is very normal. But, but I was like, you know, what? okay, I'm going to go over to these guys. I didn't know what to say. So I was just like, I just went over there. And, and oftentimes when I, I, I don't know what to do or say, I'll just stand in the group of people because I find if you stand in a group of people, everyone will assume that you know one of the other people in the group. <laughs> you know, you just kind of got a nod to everyone and they're like, okay, he must know someone here, right? And eventually when they start to pick up on it, they're like, so who are you actually? And I'm like, well, my name's Aaron. Uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about God. And they're like, that is so interesting. We were just on this topic. He's Orthodox. He's Muslim. He's an atheist. What do you think about it? And it's like, well, you know, he just walked right into that one. God had prepared the situation, and it's important. I mean, we should pray that he prepares the situation, but in the end, it's his job to prepare the hearts, to prepare the situation, and sometimes he goes ahead of us, and sometimes he goes behind us. I guess a lot of times he does both, but, but also even if it looks like, okay, God hasn't prepared this ahead of time, he's maybe prepared other things in their lives to where it looks like we're not walking into a prepared situation, but we talk about Jesus, and then their life hits the fan, and things go crazy and upside down, and they think, well, maybe I should cry out to the Lord, like that crazy American said. Maybe, maybe I should really seek God. So, you know, sometimes he's, he's more going before us, sometimes he's more going behind us, but it's important that we, that we recognize it's not our job to convert people. It's our job to tell them the good news. And it's God's job, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin and righteousness and the coming judgment and to lead them to Christ. Yeah, so we do our job, God does his job, and we work together in this. But, uh, yeah, we see here the gospel in its essence is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
So that's, that's the kernel of the, the gospel, but he also brings the evidence that this is true in saying, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So some have died, but he doesn't say die because he knows they're going to raise again on the last day because this whole, this whole chapter is about resurrection. So he says fall asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. So he's just saying, like, it wasn't like some nut job in the middle of nowhere who said he saw Jesus rise from the dead. It was many people in many places, 500 people. I mean, we have the testimonies of, of four people in, in the writers of the Gospels. Um, many people have said that, that there is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than that Caesar ever lived. There are more historical accounts of the resurrection of Jesus than about any other figure in the ancient world. Right? It is one of the most proven tasks. And, and uh, Spurgeon even said, you know, the days may come when some crazy people deny the, uh, the reality of Caesar and deny the reality of Napoleon. But until they do, there is no reason to deny the resurrection of Jesus. It is, as far as mo- many historians are convinced, even though there are some people who n- not be convinced no matter what, but many historians are very convinced this is a historical fact because there's so much evidence, so many testimony. There's 5, 500 people and many who have written about it. Yeah, it is, as far as we can be concerned, a historical fact. And yet uh, we see in this presentation of the gospel, it said Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And I think it's interesting that this is different than the the normal presentation I hear, most people uh, I hear presenting the gospel say, well, Jesus died for you. Yeah? They say, Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you, which is, is all true, but that's not the whole gospel, that Jesus died for you, right? Because if you say, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, God has a great plan for your life, some selfish humans might think, great, I love me too, I have a great plan for my life, and I'm glad somebody saw me as worthy enough to die for, right? It's not exactly calling you to life change, but when you say Christ died for our sins, then you're also saying with that, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all messed up. We are not worthy of salvation. There is bad news. We need to know the bad news before we know the good news. And the bad news is we deserve hell. And the good news is firstly, that Christ died for our sins. And yet that's not, that's not the good news. Uh, it seems weird. Christ dying for our sins, that's not the good news because it's not the whole news, right? And that might be surprising to you, but if we look down in verse, uh, verse 17 and 19, 17 and 19 here, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those who, are, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, and this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if all we say is, Jesus died for you, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and he was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is not just that he died. The gospel is that he died, but that he came back to life. And because he came back to life, we also can live with him. Because he lives, I also live. And I will continue to live into eternity. That is the good news of the gospel. And if we, if we just say, Jesus died for you, then we're not telling the whole story. 
So I would encourage you, as I do myself, I mean, it's so easy to, you know, just kind of throw out this Christianese phrase, you know, God loves you, has a great plan, all true. But if we want to tell the full gospel, it is that he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried and rose again in accordance with the scripture. And of course, this in accordance with the scriptures also, they didn't just have Jesus die, and they're like, crap, what do we do? We got to make up a story to kind of justify our existence as a group of disciples. No, no, he fulfilled so many prophecies through the Bible, and you can look through the Old Testament and just go from one prophecy to another and see that he has fulfilled these things as testified by 500 plus witnesses. This is not something that just happened, or, or some people say he just swooned on the cross, he kind of passed out, and then he went into the grave, and then and then it was like cold, so he's like, oh, I feel revived now. And then he somehow pushes this enormous rock out of the way and does some ninja moves to knock out all the Roman guards, you know. Like that, that is not what happened, okay? He rose from the dead. And it's not good news without knowing that part of it, that he is risen from the, he is risen from the dead and that we also will rise with him. That, that uh, as it says later in the chapter, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory in Jesus, and the victory is the good news. That is gospel. We have victory. We are winners in him, more than conquerors. And yet we see in his presentation, he goes through all these witnesses, and then finally he says there, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And it's so important, this part here, because Paul, he presents first the objective truth, but then he presents the subjective truth. It's not just, this is true, but this is true, and I have experienced this. And that is so important for our culture today, because most millennials and Gen Zers, they're not interested in objective truth because they've learned this, this Nietzschean uh, philosophy that, well, there are not one perspective, there are many perspectives. So there's not one truth, there are many truths. Everyone with a perspective has a truth. So if you identify, or if I identify as an Asian girl, then that's my truth, and that truth needs to be respected. And if I identify as a mermaid, you people are laughing. This is a very real matter. <laughs> Uh, there are people in Portland and they uh, identify as mermaids and you have to respect that or you are a bigot. I'm being totally serious here. You guys are laughing. This is, this is the culture coming up. You can be anything you want. See, all, all you parents, yeah, all, all the parents and millennials have always told their kids, you can be anything you want. But you didn't really think anything. You, you meant you could be a doctor, right? <laughs> That's what you meant. But they took it. They really think they can be anything, right? They think... They could be a mermaid if they want to be a mermaid, right? And, and they think if they don't like the skin they're in, they can be a wrong skin, which means that they identify with a different race than, than uh, you know, the, like if they're born white and they're like, you know what, even though all my ancestors are European, I feel black inside, then a woke person would say, okay, then you're a black person. I'm just telling you the way it is, okay? I'm not saying the way it should be. I'm just telling you the way it is among young people today. And so if you, if you understand that people are this way and you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, they're like, okay, yeah, cool for you, man. It's your truth, you know? They might even say, yeah, Jesus is true. 
you know, just as much as, you know, you're a mermaid. Like, Jesus is true. Okay, fine. You know, like, I don't want to step on your toes. And, uh, yeah, this whole objective truth is not so appealing. You know, maybe I'm making a little bit of a stereotype picture, but uh, there are definitely people who are very hardcore in this direction. And, and so if you tell them Jesus is the truth, they're like, okay. That's not what interests them. What interests them is, does it work? That's the real measure of their worldview. Not if somebody says it's true, it's does it work? And so when we move from objective truth, direct into the subjective truth of our testimony, then we're telling people, this works. Jesus changed me. He changed my life. He saved me. And that's, that's the area where, as one person says, millennials get weak in the knees. <laughs> if you talk about how Jesus has changed your life, then they get weak in the knees. They're saying, well, okay, now I'm listening. If you can tell me how to be less selfish, if you can tell me how to not think of myself all the time, even though it makes me miserable, not to fall into this pit of depression because I'm just stuck in my own thoughts and all the wounds that everyone has ever done against me. If you can get me out of this, as the Germans say, this uh, devil's circle, vicious cycle, that's what we call it. In, in German, it's a, a, a devil's cycle. If you can get me out of there, now, that's something I'm willing to listen to. And, and so I want to encourage you guys, your testimonies are very important. They're very important. And if you don't believe that, if you're like, well, I'm only for objective truth. I don't need the subjective stuff, right? Because yeah, I don't know if you can really uh, let that into a court of law, you know, these subjective perspectives. No, no. Um, if you don't believe that testimonies are important, just read the Bible, okay? Because three times Luke records the conversion of Paul. Three times he records Paul's testimony. And it's not a short testimony, right? There's a lot of details. Sometimes he brings in details. Sometimes he leaves details out depending on who's listening to him. And it's good when we give our testimony to, you know, figure out which parts will speak to this person, which parts are not going to say anything. Or like he's talking about Judaism. When he's talking with Romans about Judaism, he explains some of the stuff along the way. You see some variance between his, his testimonies. But in the end, it's the same testimony written three times. And back in the ancient world, Philemon was a very long letter. Yeah, we see Philemon. It's one page in our Bible. And we're like, okay, you know, Bible reading plan's easy today, right? So it's, it's just a short page, but in the ancient world, that is long, and the only person who we have a longer letter from at that time is Cicero. There's only one non-biblical writer who wrote a longer letter that we still have today. That's Cicero. And so if the book of Philemon, book of Philemon, the page of Philemon, if that was a long letter, how crazy is it that Luke wrote out the whole testimony of, of Paul three times? It's because he saw the power, and as far as we can tell, it seems in, in the Acts of the Apostles like, Paul did not want to present the gospel without his testimony. He always wanted to link this objective truth to the subjective experience in his life. He didn't just want to say, you know, Jesus saves. He wanted to say, Jesus saved a sinner like me, right? And that's what we want to do when we present the gospel. Not just keep it, you know, some unattached pie-in-the-sky idea, but, but then attach it to, and he saved me. He saved me. He changed my life. And there's such, such power in that. Um, I, I've probably gone over already. I think I blew apart the uh, the time last week, uh, but I, I'll try to try to land the plane here in a little bit. Uh, but I have a I have a friend. Uh, when I was going through a lay speaker certification course in the Methodist Church, uh, this this cowboy from West Virginia sat down next to me, and we started up a friendship. And uh, you know, we we felt like the two idiots in the room. You know, all the other people were were very. Uh, 
mature, well-spoken senior citizens. And, you know, and then you got this, this kid with 18 and the cowboy, you know, and we're like, we don't, in fact, he told me later, he's like, actually, I was going to leave. And then I saw you there. <laughs> and so I stayed. So in essence, he's like, well, if this idiot can do it, you know, I guess I can do it too. And, and so we went through this uh, lay speaker course. And after he, he finished up, he, he kept, he went through a couple more courses and he was uh, able to be a local pastor. And, you know, he's like, well, where, where can I serve? And they're like, ah, oh, you can serve. There, there's a church in the middle of nowhere with eight people. You could serve there because nobody else wants it. And he's like, okay, I'll take it. Yeah. And so he goes out there and he starts preaching the truth. Um, but he, he recognizes what is in common among the people who come to Jesus. Somebody goes and they tell, uh, well, in many cases, like the woman at the well, she goes and she says, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Come see the man who changed my life. And, and Andrew, he says to, to Peter and to Nathan, come and see the man who's changing lives. Come and see this man. I, I can't even explain it all. You know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Look, just come and see. Come and see the man who, who's changed my life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And he recognized that, and he just started telling his people, you know what, just go out there and say, come and see the man who changed my life. Just go out there and, and just make it that simple. Just say, come and see the man who changed my life. I can't put it in the right words. I don't know, I stumble over myself. Just, just come, just come and see the man who changed my life. Come and meet Jesus. And that little church went from eight people to over 80 people. In a short period of time, they were walking down the river, baptizing right and left, and uh, in the end, that's exactly what Paul's doing, right? He's, he's, he's connecting the objective truth with the subjective truth of a changed life, and that is powerful. Yeah. And if you're wise, you'll do the same. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not even telling you the way that, uh, that things necessarily should be. It probably should be that everyone should just listen to the objective truth. But I'm just telling you the way things are. Now, I'm telling you as a missionary that if you want to reach people, you have to contextualize the gospel in a way that they understand. And the thing that they understand most is a changed life. And Paul here, he's wrapping it up. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, people don't want to hear how awesome you are and that you became a Christian because you're such an amazing person, because they can't associate with that. People want to hear... I really messed up. I was in a really bad place because they can associate with that. They understand what it's like to be in a really bad place. In fact, um, there's a, a method of sharing the gospel in China where that's pretty much their thing. They just kind of use people's uh, interest for gossip and say, you know what? I was such a bad person. You were a bad person. You seem so great. Oh no, I was really bad. You know, they kind of awaken people's interest by just building up this case of how terrible they were and then explaining that Jesus changed their life. And, and it works very powerfully, because people are drawn to that. They're drawn to this, this brokenness and this weakness. They can identify with us in our weakness, and then we can share how Christ is changing us. And, and most of us, we would say, I'm not where I want to be. Can I get an amen? Does anybody else feel that? Amen. amen. I'm not where I want to be, but by the grace of God, I am not who I was, right? We're in this process. We are being saved, and that's the truth of the gospel, that we are being saved. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
And a lot of people think grace means you get to put your feet up and not do anything. And I, I, I guess you could try to make that case, but if you really understand grace, that's not what you want to do. If you really get what grace means, it means I get a fresh start and I want to share this good news with other people. I want them to also be saved, to get connected with this. And I don't want this grace to be in vain, like he says there, but the grace of God was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And if you really want to see lots of fruit in your life, you're going to have to work hard, right? Cooperating with God is not easy work. It can be very difficult because God, he doesn't just look at the big things you're doing. He looks at the little stuff you're doing. It's faithfulness in small things. And it's hard to be faithful in small things. And so he says that, that he worked hard. And if we don't want the grace of God to be in vain, we also will work hard. You don't need to work for your salvation, but to work from your salvation. And he has no qualms about admitting how, how hard he's been working. And so we have this interesting picture of Paul working with the grace of God. If he were to work by himself, nothing would happen. And yet, if God were to be the only one working, the grace of God on him would be in vain. And so he's working with God. It is God who works both to will and to work within him. And that's really all we can ever do. We cooperate with what God wants to do. Even Jesus said, I can do nothing except that which I see the Father doing. Right? That's all we can do is cooperate with that which God wants to do through us. And so he says, whether it, then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So in closing, in the end, the most important thing is, do you believe? Do you believe? Have you received this message? Are you standing in this message? Are you holding firm to the word that was preached to you? And I want to encourage everyone, you're still here. You're still alive. There's still time. If you have received the word at one point in the past and it's just kind of tapered off, and, and the grace of God has begun to be in vain in your life, this is an opportunity to just get right with the Lord and say, you know what, I've, I've tapered off. I've fallen away. I've not been walking with you. I've maybe been rolling in my sin instead of standing in the Lord. And this is an opportunity to say, God, I can't do it by myself, but I want to get right with you. I want to work with you to do your work in my life. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have done that which no one could do and you have saved us from our sins. And yet, when you've saved us from our sin, how can we who've been saved from it abide in it? God, I pray that you would, you would just give us a, a new disgust for our own complacency and sin, God. That, that everyone in this room would just say, I don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to wallow in sin, but I want to stand and walk in faith. I want to walk by the Spirit, God. But, but we cannot do that alone. So I pray that you would give special grace today for everyone who at this moment just says, Lord, forgive me. Lord, take me. Lord, make me to stand in you, God. That you would meet them in this moment with special grace and that they would they would sense your presence with them, the Holy Spirit convicting, but also empowering them to overcome the sins that, that, that we have given into. We cannot do this of ourselves. And yet we pray that you would help us so that your grace is not in vain in our life, but that it's effectual, that, that the faith that you give us would be a saving faith, not only for ourselves, but that it would spread like wildfire and that it would save those around us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so, as I understand, this is the close. But I figured uh, I would give you an encouraging uh, benediction. 
in which it says at the end of Jude, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.